parents and teachers, this one's for you. From owning a hip-hop studio to crusading for change in our education system, Connie Jacob is a maverick on the topic of belonging and how to make our workplaces, schools, and homes become spaces for true connection and growth. She recently left the security of a steady income to pursue a full-time entrepreneurial venture as a speaker, author, and thought leader in the space of mental health awareness. In this episode, you'll hear Connie's vulnerable story about her son's struggles with mental health and suicide ideation, and how this was a catalyst for her writing the Bring Them Closer book series. You'll also learn five steps you can take action on right now to support the people in your family and community to fully embrace who they are. And I'm going to share a personal story of what happened when I apologized to my adult son for not protecting him at a pivotal moment in his childhood. Let's go. Hey friend, you're listening to She Starts Now, the podcast for women who are ready to stop waiting and start living. I'm your host, Jackie Dumaine, and I'm inviting you on a mission to explore what it takes to step out of your comfort zone and into your courage zone. If you're looking for thought-provoking conversations and inspiring stories from women who turned pain into purpose, and you want to learn how you can do it too, I think you're going to love it here. She Starts Now is my story. She Starts Now is your story. She Starts Now is our story. So let's begin, shall we? Hello, Connie. Hello. You know, I was thinking last night as I was doing a little prep for this call today, and I was trying to figure out how we first met and how you know, we came into each other's lives and we're both in the same city here in Calgary. It's kind of a small community. And even more so when you look at the community of people who are leaders, creatives, visionaries in the city, people making an impact in the world. And can you remember how we met? You know, that is such a good question. I actually am at a loss. Yeah. Not that it really matters. We're here. We know each other. You're awesome. (laughs) And you're awesome. (laughs) So Connie, I want to thank you for coming on today to talk about your passion, first of all, of really helping people feel like they belong. And we're going to dive into your mission to change the way the education system is when it comes to helping children or children feel like they belong, which then results in them becoming adults who understand what it means to find true belonging. But I also want to highlight that you recently left a full-time role to pursue this mission full-time. Like That's how passionate you are about it, right? To change the education system. And as you know, this podcast truly is a celebration of that moment when we decide to step out of our comfort zone and do something risky because we know that inside the comfort zone, It's actually not very comfortable. It can be painful at times because we know there's so much more of an impact that we want to be making. So I'd love to ask you, what did it take for you to make that decision? Was it scary? Oh, was it a hundred percent? I'm, I'm in it. And maybe because I know I had this even a decade later after leaving my full-time role was, oh my gosh, what have I done? Um, so I'd love to explore what that, that 
feeling is? Because I know many people listening may be feeling, okay, it's time for me to step into something more and I'm scared. Oh, and, and that, that I don't know what I just did is exactly how I feel even right now. And yet so excited at the same time. When you're passionate about something and you want to pursue it, there comes a time, at least for me, where I was just thinking it's either I'm going to go full out on this or I'm I'm going to always be feeling like I'm giving it my half. I'm only half able to focus on this. And it was getting frustrating. And I just feel that in order to make the change that I need to make, this needs to be full out. Everything's on the table. We go for this or we don't. Yeah. So full alignment, it sounds like, right? When you reach that place of alignment of this is really what I see and self-trust. Yes, because that is huge, isn't it? Like we don't really realize how much or little we trust ourselves until we make decisions like this. Absolutely. You know, Connie, what I do know about you as well is it's most likely not the first time you have bet on yourself in this way. I mean, you've explored so many avenues that most women wouldn't. So what is a time, if you can reflect back on your life, where you were sort of faced with this same decision of leaving the comfort zone to go full on on yourself? You know, there's been numerous times, and I feel like it's because I'm, I'm a builder. I build things. That's what I am. And for a while, I thought that it was because maybe I'm just ADHD or flaky, but I'm I'm really good at launching things, getting things in momentum. And then it's like, now what? Now what? what's the new pioneering here? Now, education, I have stuck with that for 25 years. It is something that is, that I, when I when I thought about it in my head, I am fully dedicated to that. That is not a short-term build. That is a 25-year journey. But I've I've started a hip-hop dance studio in Vancouver. I've launched uh, different initiatives like um, National Hope Talks, which was a mental health conference on Bell Let's Talk Day. And there was a season for them. And they were there and I raised people up and left it in their capable hands and moved on. Yeah. I want to stress that you can be passionate about mental health and changing the education system and also a hip hop instructor. (laughs) Right? Yes. But we can have it all. We can feed all sides of ourselves. And sometimes we think, just as you said, well, if I do that too, will people think I'm flaky? I mean, people hold themselves back because of a perception or what they think could be other people's perception of them, right? That we think, well, if I want to do this, are people going to think I'm flaky or does that mean I'm not all in on this one thing? And personally, I think when we follow our creative pursuits and those nudges, it actually enhances everything else that we do because we're more fulfilled. It's it's so true. And I think for me, when my husband decided to go full out on one of his desires, which was to create our renovation company. And we really started dreaming about what if we could take it beyond just the restoration of a physical home, but the idea of restoring home and how this could impact even the work that I'm doing. And I had a decision to make. I thought, do I want to build 
everything else or do I want to build what my husband is building now? And that's been huge because my husband's not a dreamer and he's not a risker. And he, for the first time in his life, is risking and stepping out. And I thought, hey, I own 100% of this company with him. And if he's putting everything on the line, well, then so am I. So right now we are both full-time entrepreneurs. How does it feel? It feels surreal because that is not his norm. He likes stability. He likes predictability. But if he's going to go all out, then I'm going to go all out with him. Yeah. I love that partnership. And I'm sure that he is absorbing some of that energy from you as well. I wrote a note here that I'm going to come back to later. But when you shared something about restoring home that I think is pretty fascinating. So stay tuned. Keep listening, everybody. All right. So let's go back to Bring Them Closer, which is your... You have two books, both called Bring Them Closer, one for parents and one for teachers. The first one you wrote was for parents, correct? That's correct. And what was the spark in writing that one? That was really a reflection of of a journey that we went through with our oldest son through his own mental health crisis and visiting a hospital with his suicide ideation at age eight. And what did that look like? Bring Them Closer, the actual name of the book came from a psychologist who had said to me when I brought him to the hospital, what do you do when your son is throwing fits of rage? Because that's how depression showed up for him, was in that kind of emotion. And when she asked me, I said, well, I send him to his room. I tell him, you can't come out until you're ready to be a good boy. That's how I was raised in the 80s. In fact, I might have gotten a little smack upside my head as I was going to my room. Yep. (laughs) But then she said, oh, no, you never send the hurting away from you. You bring them closer. And I never thought to myself in that moment, oh, that sounds like a great book title. I was thinking, what on earth are you talking about? Somebody please help this kid. What do you mean hurting? Is he really hurting? Or is our lives just in chaos and we need somebody to fix us now? And so Bring Them Closer, the book is, what did I do from the moment I brought him home with meds, with a counselor, and that was not enough? All that we were still in the same chaos. We were still experiencing the same rages. And so what did I do to bring him closer? What did I do to manage myself? The whole book is the process I took through five steps and didn't have any idea that it would help so many parents and has become such a pillar in my own life in in all of my human relationships now. You know, um, thank you for sharing that. And I I want to know what it was like as a mother to see your eight-year-old son have suicide ideation. What did that do to your heart, to your soul as a mother? I think that's the hardest thing I have ever been through. Uh, There's a lot of shame because you're thinking to yourself, if I was a better mother, my son would not be in this position. Um, I'm a mental health and resilience person. I've been doing this work already for a long time at that point. Why is my kid suffering? Um, There's a lot of worry. I I still worry to this day. There's not one day I don't wake up and go, is he alive? And we're doing great now, by the way, but that's just kind of that leftover uh, trauma, really, of just going through something for so many years that you just, 
I don't really know how to explain it other than I really felt a lot of despair at the time, which sounded like if you were a better mother, if you knew what you were doing, this wouldn't be happening. Hmm. There's that mother guilt that is so incredibly strong, isn't it? Right. When we see our young ones hurting, we immediately think, what did I do? What did I do? How old is he now? 17. 17. Okay. I was actually just at lunch today with a woman and we were talking about what it even feels like when our grown adult children don't text us back. And this immediate, like, are you okay? Is everything okay? Right. So we have this innate sense, right, to make sure our baby cubs are okay. Yeah. I don't think that ever goes away, does it? No, it doesn't. My son's 31. It's like, it does not go away. Trust me, it does not go away. Bring them closer. What you mentioned, there are five steps in that parents can do. And I'm sure there's a, a mother, father, parent listening that might be experiencing... Well, maybe it's not rage. What other, like, how could it show up? What are other ways that they might be seeing this in their kids? Maybe isolation? Mm, Yes. Yeah. One of the steps that I mentioned in the book is that behavior is communication. It's always communicating a deeper story. So whether it's rage, whether it's isolation, whether it's um, school avoidance, whether it's constant worry or overthinking, um, whatever whatever our kids' behaviors are showing us, it's actually trying to tell us that there's something underneath and we need to just get curious about what is that instead of trying to fix the overthinking or trying to medicate something. And I'm not against medication and counseling. Um, I just want to make sure I let everybody know that. But if we could really look at what's underneath the symptoms, then we will find where they really need our help. So as an example, if your child is waking up frequently with a tummy ache and they don't want to go to school, that would be an open opportunity to start the communication and dive a little deeper, right? Rather than some parents might just say, oh, come on, just get there. You'll feel better when you get there. Just go and kind of forcing it rather than opening the door for communication. and. How would a parent, from a compassionate standpoint, start that conversation with their child? I think it starts with just noticing it and not mentioning anything. Um, Because we can often, if we just take a step back, like my youngest does that to this day. If he doesn't want to go to school, it's like, oh, mom, my throat hurts, or this hurts, or I'm not doing very well here. And I would get to the point where I would just maybe a couple days later say, I, I've just noticed that when phys ed is the, on, your, on your agenda for the day, that there seems to be a sore throat. Can, can we talk about that? Is there something else going on? Um, with younger children, it's hard because they can't just express, but you can start to pre-predict some of their patterns and you can start to create a plan based on what you're noticing and how you can help them overcome rather than, yeah, like just, just get out the door, just go, you'll be fine. Um, We can really start to become the adult that walks with them through these things. And I wish I could say it takes 
no time at all, but it it might even take an entire school year to really walk with our kids through those issues. I love that saying, like walk with them through it, Mm -hmm. right? Rock with them. What is the second step in bringing them closer? Uh, Peace in my heart translates to peace in my home. I had no idea that it really was not my son or my boys that needed to be the ones who changed. It was actually me. I didn't realize that my own unprocessed story was actually causing me, I would call it emotional instability. I didn't know how to process my own emotions. And so when my, both my boys wouldn't listen, I mean, I would say it really nice eight times, which by the way, I think is saint status. You know, when you say something eight (laughs) times, but by the ninth time I'm losing it. And by the 10th time I am calling them names. I am like, what's wrong with you? Like, and, and then you can't take any of that back. And I felt like a Katy Perry song, to be honest, you know, that hot, then you're cold, you're yes, then you're no. Like that was me emotionally. And I realize now that the emotional environments of our home will either increase anxiety or lower it. And I was actually a huge cause, and it's humbling to admit that, but that the emotional temperament of my home was very unstable because of me. And as I began to process my own emotions, allow myself to have emotions, I wasn't afraid of my own anger anymore. I just noticed it without judging it, started to process some of the stories that was underneath my anger. And I noticed that now all of a sudden I was able to catch and release my son's emotions. I was able to differentiate, oh, you're angry. I'm not angry. Whereas when I hadn't learned how to process that in myself, he would be angry and then I would get angry and then he'd get more angry and I would match that. So I was able to be the steady presence the more I was able to process my own inner world. You know, the charge of emotions causes us to make decisions that we might not otherwise make if our emotions were at a grounded level, right? And I think about our world today And parents perhaps having stress on themselves financially, you know, we're here in Canada, so many people's mortgages have doubled, grocery prices have doubled. And I I think about how that internal stress, internal anxiety, internal anxiety, or sorry, internal fear in the parents, that energy is being brought into the home. So I love this this experience that you had of recognizing, wait a second, I need to self-reflect first, right? And have radical honesty, radical accountability with what energy am I bringing to the situation? Yeah. Radical accountability. That's powerful what you just said. And that's how it feels. And it is, it's a little abruptive. It, it's very shameful. Shame is right there to say, well, you don't have a problem. It's the kid. I'll just give them, you know, let's just fix them. But really, when I got down to being really honest with myself, and that's what I describe as brave. When I talk about being brave, it's that willingness to embrace all the parts of us, the the parts that are beautiful and wondrous and the parts that feel like shadow. Yeah, it does. It takes a lot of courage to really 
take a look at all the different layers of ourselves and love them equally, right? Love them equally. And if we can do that with ourselves, then we can naturally do it with others, including our children. What is the third step? So there's also, I manage me, which means I don't control you. And that's, oh, that's a hard one as a parent. I can do that with everybody else. But with, with my kids, I mean, all I wanted to do was control their behavior. And so I had to start thinking about while you're making that decision over there, I'm going to be making this decision for me. And then being able to pre-predict scenarios because behavior is pretty predictable. It's like, oh, I know what's going to uh, increase anxiety. This is going to increase anxiety. So I'm going to therefore pre-plan. So it's really learning that we are more powerful than we think. We're not victims. We're not powerless. Um, I really learned how to help my kids own their own decisions. Oh, you don't want to do your homework? Well, that's okay. That I've passed grade 12. I'm good. You know, but what's going to happen if you don't? And letting go of the outcome. And I think a lot of times I didn't realize how much I was tied to the outcome of my kids. And so allowing them to really own their decisions has been huge. What have you noticed in like this pillar of letting them own their decisions? Did you notice them once you release that control? right? Like do your homework. If you don't do your homework, this is going to happen. like that, that whole stuff. Been there, done that. Said that to my child many times. Um, did you notice a shift in them when you allowed them to have accountability for their decisions? Yeah. A lot of the fighting just stopped, which then of course turned into less rage, which turned to less anxiety because now there was no trying to grip them. It's almost like there was no fight and they could just relax. Yeah. You know, I said, I've been there with my son and I had this flash of him being young. Uh, But if I were to be radically honest right now, I still do that sometimes, even though he's a grown man, right? Trying to really tell him what I think he should do rather than allowing him to explore what the best decision is for him. So, you know, these mama things. It's hard when it's your (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it really is. It really is. Okay. What's number four? So belonging creates resilience. That has been my 25 year study in all that I've done, even in my dance circles, what creates resilience? How does belonging help? And so how does belonging in a home help? How do I help my children know that no matter what decisions they make, no matter what they do, they belong, they are beloved, they they are treasured. Nothing is going to break our connection. Connection in our family is more important than being right. Um, How are we going to make sure that they know that always welcome? They're allowed to make mistakes. Kids and teenagers and maybe even me, I'll admit it. I'm an expert at making mistakes. So how do I hold them when they make mistakes? And when they're suffering, it's not about trying to get them to the end. Oh, I'm trying. You were depressed and now you're not. You were doing bad and now you're doing good. It's about how do I commit to holding the end of my rope, no matter what you do with the end of your rope. I will always mm. be here holding my end. I pulled up this quote by Brene Brown on belonging, and I know belonging is such an integral, integral pillar and foundation of your work. And I'll I'll just read it here on true belonging. True belonging is the spiritual practice 
of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. True belonging doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. And I love how you shared, like, that has to start in the home, that we, like, allowing our children to experience what it's like to fully be who they are in the space that is supposed to be their safety zone, right? Their safe zone is the home. Yeah. And it's amazing how we all want that and and we love Brene and we'll like it on Instagram, but living that out for someone else when they've really let us down. Like I, I often would say to parents, you know, with, when our kids aren't doing well, like our, my oldest son, you know, sometimes things were borderline abusive. And if that would have been a relationship, I would have left, but you can't leave your eight-year-old. And so what does it look like for that kind of belonging that Brene's talking about with boundaries and, and with parameters, but it, that was my exploration in all of that. What does belonging look like when things are chaotic, when things are scary, when things are not the way you want them to be? What, what does that look like? What does belonging look like when things are chaotic? So I would say firm boundaries. Like I, while you're doing that, I will be doing this, but I want you to know that I am here you belong in our home. We love you. Nothing's going to break our connection, but this is what I will be doing. When when there were fits of rage going on, like this is after we came home from the hospital, I would just sit in the same room. I'd remove all the sharp objects and I would just sit there and be that steady presence when I could. I couldn't always do that. And I would just say things like, we love you. We, we are here. You know, feel what you need to feel. You can't hurt me. You can't say mean things to me, but I'm here to hold you in your mess. And I think I felt so transformed myself because I thought when I'm at my very worst, what what would happen if I brought myself closer like that? What if I held myself like I held him? And that that kind of wrecked me, I'll be honest. It was a bit of a, a spiritual awakening for me, to be honest. Yeah, that like holding yourself first, right? In that, you know, we talked about boundaries that it starts with like, I need to hold myself so that I can hold them. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I'm curious if your sons are aware of how mindful and thoughtful and intentional you're being or and have been with them. Well, I don't think so. Um, actually, it was quite cute. I think a few years ago, my oldest son said to me, you know, mom, you're no hero. Just want you to know. I'm like, thank you for sharing that with me. Uh, thank you for sharing your perspective. I think I'm a hero. <laughs> I think you are too. <laughs> okay. But to them, they might never know. And that's okay. Yeah. Because it's all they know. Yeah. Right. They don't have context to see what the alternative could be, right? What the alternative could be. Um, What is the last step in bringing them closer? Oh, it's the most hopeful one. It's uh, resilience is in the repair. 
So resilience doesn't come with having the perfect parenting or never losing it on our kids or never trying to control them or never. It is actually about how we repair when we've had a rupture. And repair doesn't always mean saying sorry. It it means I care more about repairing the connection with you than I care about being right or care about what that situation was. I will always make sure that we're okay going forward. And and I, the adult, will lead that. I will not expect my kids to initiate that because I'm the leader. I'm the CEO of this house, not them. So I need to set the standard and show them what does that look like so that when they become the CEOs of their home, they'll do that with their kids and their partner. What could, do you have an example that you can share of what repairing would look like or sound like? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny. I could tell you what it it shouldn't look like for sure. Uh, Yeah. Let's do that both. Let's have some, you know, contrast. (laughs) So Mother's Day in our house was always an absolute disaster. Um, Nobody is thoughtful in my house. Nobody. Um, It's not, it's not the gift. (laughs) And, and everyone would always either forget, including my husband, like, and, and, or windows would get broken or like it just would never go well. And it would always end with me crying in my bedroom and my husband pushing my kids into the room going, go say sorry to your mother, you know? And they're like, oh, we're sorry. And then I'd be like, what? you know? And, and so that's an example of, of not really knowing how to repair and, and actually causing a lot of damage. My boys actually started to get uh, really anxious as Mother's Day would approach, I noticed for a couple of years. And I thought, wow, what have I done? I have created a monster with like just with how anxious they were. So what I what I did in that situation was repair, even though it was not even close to Mother's Day, it might have been February. I said to them, I understand that we've had some really rough Mother's Days. And I just want you to know that coming up to this Mother's Day, I don't expect anything. I just, I know you love me and I'm, this is what I'm going to do to manage myself on that day. And that was repair. Repair was, here's how I'm going to manage me. This is what I'm going to do. Um, it, It could be, I'm sorry for how I've reacted. It could be, but it's more about what, how are we letting these kids know that we are adults who understand how to manage ourselves? I think that, well, I mean, that can be applied in all of our relationships, right? Instead of, you know, when you have people who know there's a heavy energy, whether it's around birthdays or Christmas or whatever that might be, right? I I think of holidays with families who might have blended families or, you know, there's just stuff going on and there's this unspoken energy of like, what's this Christmas going to be like? Because last one was a disaster or whatever that holiday or experience is. I love how you share, like recognize that it may not have been the best experience last year or last time. And I think just in that acknowledgement that it opens up the door for conversation and a feeling of uh, being seen and understood, just the recognition of it. Yeah. That's so important. And when we do that, we're also really allowing ourselves to feel acknowledged 
and advocating for ourselves. This is important. I am important. Yeah. And repair, you know, for parents listening, anyone listening, really, repair can happen at any time. And I am right now thinking of a walk that I was on with my son. This was probably four or five years ago down in Douglas Fir Trail. And I had an experience, a memory of an experience in my mind where I was in a relationship and the person that I was in a relationship with said something that wasn't very nice to my son. And I was at that time in a situation where I didn't stand up for him. I really didn't stand up for him. And, you know, he was probably eight, nine years old at the time. And so I brought it up and just said, I want you to know that this experience, I'm going back a a long time here, but this experience, I could have done better. I could have stood up for you. I could have said something. I could have been, you know, put my arms around you and said, don't talk to my son that way. And because of my own fears and insecurities, I didn't do that and I should have done better. And it opened up, I mean, he remembered it very clearly, which again was a, a huge sign of this is, he's still hanging on to it. I'm hanging on to it. And we could have gone the rest of our lives hanging on to it either subconsciously or consciously. And it opened up the door for this deep, meaningful connection that just brought brought us closer, brought him closer, brought me closer. It brought us closer together as mother and son. And so the repair can happen at any time. So if you're thinking, well, that happened five years ago, that happened 10 years ago, they probably don't remember, or it's such a long time ago, why bring it up again? I think it's still important to bring it up again if it's on your mind, because if you're feeling it energetically, chances are they are too. It's so true. Yeah. And it's never too late to bring it up. Yeah. So for a recap, can you recap those five steps for us, please? And I'll leave links in the show notes to get Connie's book and learn more about her as well. So, but I would love for you to just recap them. For sure. So it's peace in my heart means peace in my home. Behavior is communication. I don't control you. I manage me. Belonging creates resilience and resilience is in the repair. Love it. And that is the bring them closer for parents. Now, when you wrote the book for teachers, are these steps any different or is there the same essence that is weaved throughout them? Definitely. It's the same five steps. Uh, I wrote it with a principal so she could add, you know, her side of as an administrator of a school. What does that look like? But it is, it's the same. Um, they've just started doing restorative circles in some of our schools here in Calgary. And a restorative circle is where you sit kids in a circle and they share, how are they doing? They're really trying to bring a wellness initiative to our education system, which is great. But if that teacher is holding any kind of emotion that that might be tense, we we know that we create with emotion. And mental health is created socially. And so there's this concept of interpersonal neurobiology, how attunement rewires the brain. And so if, if those students come in with anxious wiring or any kind of situations that might be causing them to want to hide or avoid... And that teacher can't hold that. 
that restorative circle is going to backfire. It's actually going to become unsafe and the kids are going to not want to do that at all. They're going to hide. They're going to say things that are silly and they're not going to get anywhere. And so this whole idea of peace in my heart translates to peace in my classroom. You don't control your students. You let your students own their decisions and you walk with them. You behavior is communication. Instead of looking at that kid saying that kid is oppositional, it's like, really, what's going on? Um, there's a lot of movement in schools right now to be trauma informed. And I tell teachers, you know, if you want to be trauma informed, here it is in a sentence. What is that student's story from their perspective? not from yours, because they might find something traumatic that maybe other people don't. And if you understand it, you can work with them. Uh, Resilience being in the repair, of course, how do we repair with students when we've messed it up? I can only imagine what it's like to have 30 kids. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And And what are the, what are the, you know, you said you co-wrote this with a principal when it comes to repair with a student. So you know, I'm thinking of, I mean, things were a little bit different back when I was in school. I think teachers were allowed to do things that they might not be allowed to anymore. But when a teacher wants to repair with a student, are there guidelines they need to be aware of on how they approach this in terms of like communication, et cetera? So if a teacher accidentally yelled at a student, let's say, or consciously, like not even accidentally, like what does that look like for a teacher to enter into the relationship of repair with a student? I really think that it would be so important for an educator at the beginning of the year or even tomorrow, like any time counts, to say in this class, this is how we will relate with one another. I will hold my end of the rope no matter what you do with your end. This is what holding the end of my rope looks like. When I drop my end of the rope, I say something that I don't mean, I'm having a rough day, then I will come to you and I will admit that was wrong. Will you forgive me? Those are words we don't hear in our society, let alone schools. Will you forgive me? It almost sounds like we're we're putting that student above us, but we're not. We're teaching them that to let go of my mistake, if you choose but also to understand that I'm human and I realize that I need to ask for that, whether you're willing to give it or not. And that might be a little radical for some people. They might not like that wording, but there's something powerful about forgiveness in our hearts when we let somebody uh, go, let their mistake go. Even though it was wrong, it made us feel bad, that it wasn't right. Forgiving doesn't mean it wasn't right. But to let that go and out out of our soul, because I wonder, and I know that you you work in a lot of uh, energy, I wonder how much we're holding when we are holding so much resentment towards everyone who's hurt us. And I wonder, very curious about how that's impacting us mentally and emotionally. Absolutely. I literally recorded a Instagram reel about the power of apologies and forgiveness just a few days ago and how when we are holding on to something in our soul, right? So if we've done something to harm someone and we're still holding on to it, or someone has done something to harm us, whether it was 10 days ago or 10 years ago, it's taking up space in our soul. And it it could be conscious and it could be subconscious. And I'm sure everyone listening, we've all had that moment where we might 
you know, almost like a deja vu type moment where we think of something that, oh my gosh, I remember saying that to that person in grade eight. And that was kind of mean, right? If, if you think something like that, you're literally still carrying that energy with you. And chances are, so is that person, whether they're consciously thinking about it or not. And I have, this was years ago when I was uh, studying Eastern philosophy, et cetera, and the whole concept of how our soul requires apology and forgiveness. I thought of a moment like this of someone in grade seven, when I said something quite mean to her. And this is, you know, I don't know how many decades later I thought of it. And so I reached out to her on Facebook and I said, Hey, (laughs) this might sound strange. I hadn't talked to her since like grade nine. Um, but I thought of this today and I remembered at this moment where I said this to you and that was really cruel. And I wanted to say, I'm sorry. And she responded with, yeah, I remember that. Like, I remember that. I'm just getting goosebumps thinking about it again. And it became this like, beautiful sense of closure that there was like acknowledgement from me that that was a mean thing to say and so there was apology and forgiveness all in one facebook messenger conversation and i'm not saying that every encounter like that will result in in you know beautiful high-fiving however it's so incredibly cleansing for the soul so incredibly cleansing so as we were talking about, you know, teachers and repairing in our education system, so not in like the classroom education system, but the university education system where teachers are trained, okay? So have there been additions to the curriculum to assist teachers with the rise in mental health in our young children? I would say in some universities, there's been an attempt, but it's not where it needs to be. This is what I hear from teachers all the time. They're like, we were not equipped to know how to deal with the complexities of today's classroom. And I understand the idea of inclusive education. They, they, they don't separate kids anymore. They want the kids with autism and ADHD and all kinds of different, you know, neurodiversity. And, and they want kids who are just moving here from the Ukraine, for example, refugees. They want everyone to be in a, in a community together. The problem with it is that it's causing teacher burnout and overwhelm because there isn't the support for that teacher to know how to deal with those complexities. And I'm always trying to advocate for the fact that teachers have a scope of practice, and that is to educate. And unless we're going to give them more additional training, either in university before they come out or now, uh, bringing them back to classes where they can get some really great Uh, tools on how to do a classroom like that, but we don't have that right now. And the number one thing I'm hearing the last couple of years is we're so overwhelmed. We're so burned out. We have teachers leaving the profession in droves. We have principals who literally are just like walking out of their schools and not coming back because they just can't handle it. And so all I'm asking at this point is if we want to have a classroom like that, then we need to set it up for that teacher's success and that student, because right now no one is winning. 
I it actually frightens me to think of teachers and principals just walking off, right? And what that is going to do to an already imbalanced ratio ratio of teachers to children. And I'm I'm curious. So if teachers want to be equipped with the skills and tools they need, do they then have to just continue their education on their own? They do. Now they do have a little bit of funding, um, professional development funding. The problem is, is that no one's really giving them anything that's easily applied. So we're giving them trauma-informed education. But those teachers are thinking to themselves, look, I, I just need something extremely practical. I don't need to become a psychologist. I need something that I can apply tomorrow. And there really isn't a whole lot out there like that right now. There's a lot of knowledge, but not a way to help them apply that knowledge. Going back to what you said, when teachers say, listen, like, I don't want to become a psychologist, right? And they were trained to educate. They were trained to educate. So when you look at changing the education system, rather than asking our teachers to take on, to become psychologists and educators, which is a lot, right? Which is a lot. What do you envision is needed in the schools to have that other pillar there for mental health support? I think it would be amazing to have um, intentional culture, so training administrative administratives on how to create healthy psychological safety, um, safe safe places to work. I think that would be number one. I think that every school needs some kind of psychologist, um, some kind of clinical work in their school. Um, I think every school needs a parent coach, somebody who's rallying the community. Because right now we have teachers and parents and they're not on the same page. In fact, they're they're almost warring against each other because they feel that they're they they feel that they're against each other. And we're forgetting that that poor kid <laughs> is our focus. And so just someone there to help navigate the emotion and the intensity of what our kids are facing so that they can equip parents. This is how you would, this is how you could advocate in a healthy way. This is how you can impact your child at home. You know, when when my son was going through uh his his struggles and school obviously has always been an issue. I always said to the teacher, it's not your responsibility to educate my kid. It's mine. I am responsible for him to graduate grade 12, not that teacher. Now, some parents listening may may just want to come through the microphone and get me, <laughs> but he's my responsibility. I won't, I won't give them your address. Yeah. <laughs> I, will not, I will not give out your address. Thank you. But 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 he is my responsibility. That That teacher, he has that teacher for this year and that's it. And so I took his education into my hands. And I think that um, I tell teachers that it's not their responsibility to make sure that my son graduates. They have to do it with their end of the rope. I have to do it with my end. And I think we have bled into each other's roles, which I think is why there's a lot of overwhelm and confusion and hurt. Yeah, I think back to when my son was in, you know, grade school, junior high, all of it. I mean, I didn't even think about like, you're just going to school, right? The teachers are handling things. I didn't even really think of being involved with the teachers at the time. Here's another thing that came up for me. 
Uh, I recently had a conversation on the podcast with a woman who wrote a book called The Pink Tax. And we were talking about, well, I brought up my experience of getting support for perimenopause and how I realized that, wow, it's almost pay to play. Like, you, right, to get proper education on what's happening with my body hormonally and to get the right hormones, et cetera. And I shared they should replace algebra in school with hormone education. Because, you know, when you think of like teenage girls or like oh, they're just going through their things. It's hormones, right? It is a hormone imbalance. And I'm wondering why there isn't like embedded into the curriculum mindset training, like mindset classes, mental health classes, personal growth classes that really empower our kids to be whole, holistic, right? From all avenues and maybe dropping some of the other stuff that really seems useless most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and the encouraging thing is that this year, at least in Calgary, they are embedding wellness into all aspects of curriculum like literacy, numeracy. But but here's the problem. Um I remember I used to speak in school assemblies. I used to teach on mental health and go for their mental health days and there was one time I was finished and I, I was like, man, I crushed that talk. You ever, you know, when you have those times where you're like, that went really well. And I had this grade eight girl come up to me after and she said, you know, you speakers, you're all the same. You say the same thing over and over again. Guess what? We're not listening. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, feisty, feisty. I crushed it. Yeah. But, but what I heard her say is stop, stop telling me how to be well and start showing me how to be well. And so again, I, I commend um, our education system for trying, like, okay, let's get these restorative circles, uh, which Dr. Gabor Mate talks a lot about, and let's bring wellness into the curriculum. But if that teacher doesn't have peace in their heart translating to peace in their classroom, if they're not doing that inner work, I teach teachers uh, a very short little um, coaching thing that they can do to themselves. Like, what is my resting emotional state? What does that emotion sound like if it was a sentence? And what are the behaviors that I'm noticing in myself? And I could literally do that on my way to work. I can do that on a washroom break. And it just is like, how am I doing? Okay, I'm holding myself. So now I can hold these kids. So when I'm teaching them the wellness curriculum, I'm actually living it and I'm showing them. And maybe I even have real life examples from my own life that I can share, which I think matters more to them than here's children. Here's how you live well. I love that. And you know, the whole peace in, um, sorry, how did you say it? Peace in my heart. Means peace is in my class. Class, peace in my class. I mean, it, it almost has to start with also peace in my heart equals peace in the staff room too, right? Like in all parts of the school, not just in the classroom because the teachers also need to support and rally with each other. They do. And I'll be honest, after teaching in schools for many years, the staff room is the last place I wanted to eat my lunch. Yeah. Because it was, it was a complaining fest about yeah. all kinds of things. And if that could change, that that would make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Connie, I can feel your passion. I can 
you know, I, I don't know because I'm so much far, I'm so far removed from our education system now that my son has grown and out of it. Um, but it's so exciting to see that there are passionate humans like you that are really not backing down from, from seeing change and that you are making a dent and you are making a difference. And I hope you know that. And I hope that you celebrate yourself for the impact that you're making. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Jackie. I appreciate that. It, it's a big mountain, but uh, we we climb it one step at a time. Absolutely. So I'd love to ask you three questions that I ask everyone at the end. But before I do, I want to mention the the thing that I said I would mention at the end that I wrote down. When you shared about you and your husband going all in on you know, restoring the home. So like home renovations, but also restoring home, the peace, the love, the communication in the home. I immediately got this vision of a like Netflix series where you guys like go into the home and while he's like renovating a room, you're with the parents and the family and you're restoring home. Like, yeah. And then there's like the big reveal and everyone's crying and it's all beautiful. That's really interesting that you say that. That's the exact vision I had when we started. Well, I'm with you on it. I'm cheering you on on that. I'm holding that vision for you because that would be a show worth watching. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Connie, what is something you wish you would have started earlier? I wish I would have gotten a master's. So schooling. I'm actually looking at going and getting a master's in clinical psychology. It's going to take 15 months. I wish I would have done it when I was younger, but I'll do it now. That's fine. But I do wish it would have been before. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'm cheering you on for that too. And what would you say to someone who was afraid to start, to start something, whatever that thing is, so they're just sort of on the edge, but afraid to take the full leap? I would say start where you feel your strength is lending um, its its momentum to you, like that low-hanging fruit. Start with what's available to you right at this moment that you could grab onto today. And then what will happen tomorrow will reveal itself. Love it. And the last question is, what's next for you? What's the next thing you want to start? Oh, boy. You know, I I honestly think it really is more of this. It's really seeing how can we help the education system? How can we get in there and create with with teachers and schools and, and in homes? Thank you so much. Connie, you amaze me with how much energy you have, how much passion you have. And I... If you guys aren't familiar with Connie, as I said, I'm going to put all her information in the show notes here where you can learn more about her book and uh, all the amazing work that she's doing. And I just want you to know it doesn't go unnoticed. I am literally in awe sometimes in seeing everything that you put out into the world so consistently and with so much energy. And I know it can't be easy every day. I know there must be days that you're exhausted and wonder <laughs> what the heck am I doing? Um, but I, I celebrate every ounce of energy you share with the world. Thank you, Jackie. And likewise, just so you know. Thank you. Uh, I'll talk to you soon, my friend. 
From the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening to this episode of the She Starts Now podcast. If you've been inspired and want to join a community of brave, action-taking women, I invite you to join the She Starts Now movement, where you'll get the support, the tools, and the encouragement you need to create a courageous life. Head over to shestartsnow.com for more details. Until then, keep blooming, and I'll see you right back here for the next episode. Thank you.